Welcome to the DLR Libraries podcast, Need to Read. Recommended reads from those in the know. Dr. Tom Tracy is a writer, educator and alumnus of Oxford University, where he wrote his doctoral thesis on David Foster Wallace. He has presented papers at field-defining conferences devoted to the work of Wallace and has published several essays on the author's fiction and non-fiction. Aside from the Wallace Scholarship, Tom has co-designed a school library, conducted social policy on research on behalf of Shannon Aaron, freelanced at Google, penned book reviews for the Irish Times and Dublin Review of Books, and published poetry with Poetry Ireland and internationally. Tom is also a founding member of Rock Ed, a TED-style public speaking event held annually at Blackrock College, and his most recent project, a recording of one of his poems for the Words Lightly Spoken podcast, is due to be aired this November. Okay, so you're very welcome today, Tom. Thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, we're sitting in Blackrock Library, um, where you grew up, or, or you not in the library, but in Blackrock. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had grown or up maybe in the library. library. Yeah. And we have uh, both have a pile of books here, um, David Foster Wallace books, which we're going to talk about. Maybe just start with them. Um, what drew you to David Foster Wallace? Um, obviously, to do your thesis on him, you must be a, a big fan yeah absolutely um i stumbled into reading wallace uh during my masters i took an option module on postmodern literature and literally on the last day uh we had wallace on the course and i got into what i suppose could be regarded as a polite uh disagreement with my professor yeah. over what wallace was trying to do um he kind of had pitched it as wallace is a postmodern satirist and that was kind of the party line at the time we're talking around 2004 here okay so not long after well when did he died in 2008 but um i suppose not long after he really came to prominence in the late 90s and he was starting to be read on college courses but anyway uh i went off and wrote a master's thesis on that uh, sort of um, to try to prove my point to the prof uh, and I, I sort of made the point that he's trying to go beyond postmodernism which is now fairly standard fare for people to think and that um, in, in that case I was trying to make the point that there are actually realist elements to his work I think I kind of called it radical realism and I suppose I drew on the idea that you know he's living in a, an age of media and now internet and a little bit like the way maybe the invention of maps and clocks, you know, cartography and horology in uh, the Renaissance changed the way Renaissance writers saw their world, you know. Um, things like the internet mm. obviously affect or, the or way cameras we... cameras with painters, you know, like once they... For sure, yeah. How they com- composed a picture, yeah. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. Um, and, of course, photography in kind mm. of... At the, at the dawn of modernism changed the way painters like Picasso or Braque would have decided to paint less figuratively or whatever. Since then, I've read things Wallace has said that, that where he makes the point that he is trying to engage in a certain sense with a realist view of the world. But I think that very much depends on your definition of what realism is. It's certainly not the kind of 19th century realism of George Eliot with the om- uh, omniscient narrator looking down with a God's eye view. Um, but maybe something that's real about the way our almost our neurons, you know, uh, receive the sensory data of our world yeah. you know uh, but anyway I suppose I had a bit of an itch to scratch so uh, the the masters really wasn't enough and I realized that there was I, t- I took a year out uh, from college um, 
and I went traveling and working and I realized there was more to Wallace here and that there's this whole side of him that again now has become much more uh, seen as a conventional or established point of view that he's a moralist in some respects that there's a great degree of moral philosophy uh, that's underpinning his work um, Wallace studied philosophy in college his father was a professional philosopher and actually I had um, done a bit of philosophy in my undergrad so I always had that interest so one of the things that pulled me into Wallace was the way he engages with philosophical or metaphilosophical ideas in his fiction yeah could you describe his writing maybe for someone who hasn't um, uh, read him not necessarily the plot but just yeah um, was anyone else writing like that at the time I know he had like Jonathan Franzen is often um, linked to him or sure. one of his peers yeah um, actually I had come to Wallace just before Franzen and I found it quite hard to brilliant as Franzen is I found it quite hard to kind of make the transition then to reading him you know in the same week or in the same month because to me the writing style felt so different Franzen felt closer to that kind of you know 19th century novel uh, of character and relationships mm -hmm. and all that and not that Wallace doesn't have a plot or um, or character but it's a very different experience in fact as you say it's really like nothing else I had ever experienced at the time and you know uh, I suppose the first thing is the prose style uh, as opposed to plot I think you know the writing while there is plot there the writing very much is the thing that comes to the fore uh, very energetic kind of maximalist sentences for the for the most part particularly in his novel Infinite Jest which is his most famous work um, and, and a kind of an exuberance and energy a verve uh, and and I think at times quite challenging because they're long sentences but the people often say the voice or uh, the narrative voice is something akin to the voice in your head that kind of voice we all have when we're going around having conversations with ourselves about all sorts of neurotic things mm -hmm. and you know it, it's a turns by turns you know uh, anxious uh, needy uh, curious uh, you know digressive Mm -hmm. and then often very critical or self-critical mm -hmm. yeah because he's very self-aware but and also self-critical so yeah um i guess that makes him kind of relatable to read um which is nice um but but he had he doesn't necessarily have that if you just sort of have heard a little bit about him you might think he's a pretentious writer or um but when you dive in he's, it's actually quite not easy it's hard <laughs> i find it a bit hard sure definitely but much more accessible i think yeah than, saying, than yeah. you might think yeah even like the double barrel name probably for some people um makes you go oh who you know david foster wallace is this the kind of the young pretentious yeah. genius and the prodigy and on, on one level while that's not true he yes he was a, a prodigy and I would argue a, a genius and I think a lot of other people would say the same but that doesn't mean that he's necessarily pretentious and yeah. I think that you know Wallace had this view that you know I want to make the reader do some of the work mm -hmm. because unlike say with TV where you can just sit back or I guess we should say Netflix today uh, sit back and chill and just you know take it all in and let the the TV screen entertain you you have to put in like a relationship actually you have to put in uh, your part uh, to that relationship uh, or even if it boils down to something simple like like a conversation like this that we're having you know you have to give your attention to the other person you really have to uh, engage 
and you also have to be kind of be responsive and do part of the work to make it mm -hmm. an enjoyable kind of engaging yeah. experience and in a way for him that's what reading was about because quite similar to Franson actually um his view i think was that write, uh, writing was a way to engage with loneliness and to feel less alone and to engage with the idea of hu the human um you know vicariously you know mm -hmm. it's uh, and experiences vicariously we don't always get to experience certain things in our own lives and one of the roles of fiction i guess was always to learn about things that we couldn't otherwise because you know if you're living in a you know in a world where travel is difficult you know you read travel narratives like robinson crusoe or something mm -hmm. um but now i think it's more about breaking down the wall almost the solipsistic walls that are put up uh, by us and engaging w with and empathizing with the experiences of other people yeah does that make sense at all yeah no it does and yeah. um i guess you said you he wanted to make us work a bit do, th do you think it's a sort of reaction to what he was seeing at the time um even though it's a lot worse now but um yeah. the beginning of well it wasn't the beginning the, i don't know if phones were around when he wrote infinite jest but well, yeah. they're starting to be around they people. Were. people were were a lot busier um tv was a big big yeah. tv and film taking I, up a lot of people's time i think you're right um so infinite jest was published in 1996 so it's a, a novel which he wrote in the early 90s and uh things were definitely starting to change then the internet uh, obviously yeah. the internet yeah. you know i certainly remember my first kind of phone and regular use of email was in 98 so a couple yeah. of years after that yeah um so yes i think the world is changing and what's interesting about infinite jest in particular is how prescient it is of so many things like there's even a character of a uh, a u.s president who is not unlike in many respects um you know donald trump or okay. trump-like figures even though the character whose name is johnny gentle a, yeah. a famous crooner before he became president um you know has actually reagan more reagan style qualities that sort yeah. of hollywood president you know okay maybe we could talk about the end notes so this is um for people who don't know he this is a i don't know if it's um something he chose to do as a sort of um experiment um stylistic type thing or mm. um just oh, to mock academia or anything um sure. but he has <laughs> a lot of end notes in a lot of all his, I don't know if it's all his work, but I mean, everything I've read has has end notes in it. But maybe you'd explain a little bit about that. Yeah, well, that's interesting because uh, often when you first mention Wallace or hear about Wallace, someone else might say, "Oh, the guy with the footnotes." And yeah. I think there is an interesting distinction there between footnotes yeah, well, and end notes. This is what I learned to my research. I I would have said footnotes, and then I realized, okay, they're actually called end notes. End notes yeah. yeah. And in, in, excuse me, in Infinite Jest, they are endnotes. Yeah. Uh, and I think they're titled as such. And they all come at the back of the yeah. book. Um, even though, obviously, they're ref you, you know, you skip to the back continuously. So when you're yeah. reading Infinite Jest, it's best to probably have two bookmarkers with you. Well, this is with my you. brother's copy. Um, oh. It's, um, for people listening, it's it's in about three pieces and it's held together with elastic band. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he bought it that way, like secondhand, or if it's he's just interrogated it thoroughly. <laughs> Pre-loved, I think, is the word for yeah, that book. Yeah, so there was a lot of flicking around in that book. Um, <laughs> Wonderful. Um, so yeah, you have to go back and forth, which might put a lot of people off. Yeah, I, that's that's fair. And I think that comes back into part of what... Uh, Wallace was getting at when he said he wanted the reader to do a little bit of the work to put in the work because look, let's be honest in life you only get back what you put in um, that's always been my view anyway 
And it's more than that, though. I think he wanted to create kind of narrative ruptures because we don't experience life in a linear fashion. I don't know if we ever have, to be honest, but definitely not in our age where, you know, you're, if you're anything like me, you know, you're picking up your phone every couple of minutes to mm. check a text or you go onto an app and then someone's calling for your attention or you might be, you know, commuting and then you'll watch a video and then you'll switch channel about 50 times. Or you go in the into space an app an and you close it and then you open the same app again. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> you just feel really disgusted at yourself. I know. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting you say that because, you know, that almost sort of slight self loathing yeah. can come into elements of some of his characters who are like addicted in, in one respect or another to either their technology or their their tv shows or their even if it's their their sport of choice or their their substance of choice and i think he he does pick up on that kind of addictive back and forth kind of hopping and jumping element mm-hmm. that's really prevalent now in our culture um so it's it's a it's a weird mix of i want to get i think i want to get the reader to do some of the work here uh to to kind of jump around a little bit mm-hmm. to rupture the linearity of the experience of reading uh, and i know that he put things that weren't maybe absolutely necessary to get a general gist of the flow of the narrative or the plot mm-hmm. uh into the end notes yeah. uh, but he still wanted the reader to do that work and do you think he just couldn't let he had so much to say and he he just had to put them in without putting them in the main text as yeah well. yeah and i think to some extent his editor michael peach may have uh insisted yeah. to some extent on that in order for the book to be marketable and sellable because even the most um you know assiduous reader presumably yourself uh or myself you know it's a big ask in in today's world to say hey read this thousand page novel you know yeah. um when you could be doing all these other things and wallace was very i think conscious of you know what can you expect in terms of the reader's attention? Uh, and if you're, or if you're going to ask of the reader's attention, you have to give them something, mm-hmm. you know, give them something back for that work that they put in. Yeah. Um, it, it did remind me a little bit um, of Carlo V. Knosgaard, who I love. I don't know if you've read him, but he, he, he will go off on tangents <coughs> for pages that is the character thinking um, and then comes back to in the room with the person. Mm. Um, but that'll happen in a split second, you know, and that's kind of how our mind, our thoughts work, really. And I think he, d- he covered David sort of, I don't know how to abbreviate him. DFW takes just as long as to say David Foster Wallace. Or call me Dave, as he Dave. used to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dave uses that in his, I, fe- I feel like that kind of idea of so much is happening mm. in the emotions of the character. So like mm. the footnote helps jam that in as well, or the end ed- note. Yeah, I th- I think that in a sense, a lot of what's going on in the main text, there's almost sensory overload or informational overload, and the endnotes do serve as a sort of respite or break. So you can almost a reflective moment where you get a little bit more detail if need be, a little bit more backstory or context, or some kind of re- critical reflection mm-hmm. that we often don't have time to do when we're yeah. flying through things. Uh, as regards Knausgaard, um I'm glad to say that I I don't have to say I've never read any of his work but my only experience of him is a book called Home and Away uh, a correspondence between a a friend of his uh, another writer whose name I forget uh, about the World Cup in football yeah Um, yeah but he there is a digressive element and uh, he does seem to be wonderfully perceptive about these little moments in life yeah yeah. not unlike Wallace which is lovely and and if 
if you're into that, which I am, it's it's, it's great. For sure. Um, <laughs> so like, who, if do you, obviously you like the book, so we, maybe we'll talk a bit about the book. Sure. How do you recommend it to people? Because you're just in describing it, like I'm thinking, like, who has time? Like I don't have time to read it now. Yeah. But you'd have to really commit to it, wouldn't you? So, like, how, who would you recommend it to, and how? And yeah, it's, and it, do you? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I think commitment is a big is the big word there. Um, I've always felt, and I I kind of have a slight disagreement on this um, with a friend of mine, Mark O'Connell, who's uh, the oh, author yeah. of To Be a Machine. Yeah. And we've had conversations about finishing books, you know, and. Uh, he, he published a piece I think in the New Yorker a couple of years ago about not finishing books and I, I often feel I, I won't say I finished every book I've read but I often feel there's that moment of commitment when you open mm-hmm. the first page and okay you might give it a page or two and then say right this isn't for me but when I'm in I'm really in uh, yeah. in a sense again it's a bit like a relationship where there's a kind of a contract I've always felt between author and reader where they're saying I've put myself into this give it a go I give it a real go a proper go let's make a go of this um mm-hmm. and so Infinite Jest is definitely a book like that mm-hmm. uh, I mean we could sell it in all sorts of ways by saying you know it's it's the most a- ambitious work of the last quarter century at least uh the pro style is as good or better as anything you're going to read in parts it's flocked with characters, often zany, wacky characters and very true to life, real characters. Um, and it engages with all these like really major themes of today. Uh, it, primarily, it engages with the issue of uh, addiction, uh, mm-hmm. specifically in American society, because he saw himself as an American writer. So, you know, if you're if you're interested in the theme of addiction, it's a, a must read. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're interested in related issues like, say, depression and anxiety, it's definitely an interesting read. If you're interested in America in general today or in the last 20, 25 years, it's definitely a, a kind of monumental artifact of that. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think people say it's a book that you know everybody's kind of got on the nightstand you know with a bookmark about yeah. quarter of the way through or 100 pages into it and yeah. in that respect it might reflect books from previous times like Ulysses um where you know everybody in Dublin mm-hmm. knows what Ulysses is they've all they've yeah. all spoken about it they know who James Joyce is and most people might give it a crack every 16th yeah. of June but um unlike Ulysses it, it it doesn't get progressively more challenging and almost you know borderline impossible yeah. uh, for someone of you know uh, or kind of more moderate reading tastes yeah. uh, infinite jest sucks you in i think the more you 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 give into it as much as put into mm-hmm. it uh the more you kind of you know you yeah. you immerse yourself in that world um so it's not for the faint-hearted mm-hmm. but it is for a work of essentially avant-garde um experimental literature mm-hmm. in a sense it is quite accessible and mm-hmm. and the language is the language of our everyday uh, discourse or everyday conversation, as well as somewhat literary language at times. But it's it's chock full of you know it, part of the book is set in or most of the book is set in Boston. It's chock full of kind of Boston slang and mm-hmm. euphemisms for various things. Like you know he refers to uh, a. I think the term unit is for uh, a gentleman's, you know, private part. And, you know, often in very kind of uh, humorous or rich ways. So it engages with the kind of colloquial, with the the vulgar, with um, different argos in in ways that's fascinating. And it's funny. He's very funny. And that's like, doesn't sound 
that funny when you talk about it, like it's about depression and addiction a lot, yeah. which is, <laughs> but it, it's got sadness and very it's such a funny style as well he kind of at the time I when I was younger he kind of reminded me of a mix of like Douglas Coupland and um Douglas Adams as well right. the absurdity yeah. of that a sure. little bit um and then he obviously tries to raise your game um he's really into his grammar and his mum was she, she wrote a book on grammar or she, she did she wrote, she a, wrote a, book, a book on grammar i should say <laughs> um and there's a lot of him in it as well isn't there like is it just seems to mirror a lot of things that happened in his life yeah there, his interests that's for sure I, I guess probably like any author he's absorbing things from all sorts of uh, avenues and angles um, and yeah I, I mean we're getting into all this chat about end notes and you know p- postmodernism and this that and the other but the truth is it's an at times uproariously funny book it's hilarious and i actually a, a good friend of mine and he finished the book uh, last month he finally got around to reading it and i said let's have a call and we'll chat about it or he yeah. actually wanted to call me and, and talk about the book because i think he'd been pestering yeah. his wife and pretty much everyone else about how great it was uh and the first thing he said when he came onto the phone uh, and this is a guy who's no stranger to humor he said it's so sad like it's such a sad book and I, I thought, yeah, he's right, it's true. But I was waiting for him to say, Oh my god, man, it's so funny. Like and So not yeah, not everyone says that. No, um, not everyone says it. Yeah. Now my it depends on your humour, obviously. It does. <laughs> <laughs> my my I was kind of waiting to say to him, Oh, it's so fun isn't it so funny? You know, and, and get into the, all the humour. Uh it and it very much is. At times there's kind of the slapstick stuff going on, even. Um but What's so remarkable about the book is that while it is on the surface quite funny and certain episodes are uh, extremely funny indeed, deep down there is a sadness, Mm. you know, underlying the book. And I think that's part of its power, that it's making you laugh, sort of like the title Infinite Jest. It's this like ongoing series of almost jokes and jests. uh, But deep down there's this kind of gesture towards Mm. sorrow. Yeah, uh, that's very hard to shake once you've gone through and you, the journey with it. And you know, and knowing his his own personal struggles with depression as well. Of course, yeah, yeah, he struggled with depression for years, and that wasn't something that was necessarily widely known until after um, he after his suicide. Uh, and, and you know, he had been on antidepressants for many years, and that, as as his father had said, that helped him to be creative and to. Mm-hmm to channel uh his experiences and you're and you know just like with his father the the philosophy professor um and the philosophical influences there you know his mother as he said was uh she was a high school teacher and she wrote a primer on composition and grammar uh it, it's for those who are into that kind of thing it's an excellent book mm-hmm. um and i will definitely uh, teach you how to use a semicolon <laughs> but um yeah and and in fact the, one of the mother figures in infinite jest is uh not particularly portrayed very nicely and is a bit of a i think the non-pc term is grammar nazi yeah uh or grammar fascist um yeah. and i don't know if they were speaking for a while after that if gossip is anything to go by okay. but uh she seemed like an interesting character. I think I forget which article it might have been a Rolling Stone article on them or something. They talked about if when they were kids, if someone had said something grammatically wrong mm. at the table, dinner table, the mum would have a coughing fit and she wouldn't stop until <laughs> whoever had said it realized what they had done and corrected themselves. Yes, so it's, it's, I <laughs> it's guess is extreme. that called passive aggressive. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. 
yeah, and I think he refers to her in his essay on uh, he Wallace wrote um, a piece on the American uh, Dictionary of uh, of of Modern Usage, uh, I think it's called, mm-hmm. and. He, he he makes reference to his family's experiences and his mother and that she was a, what they called in their family a snoot s-n-o-o-t yeah. as an acronym and yeah. he said depending on who you are it either means syntax nudniks of our time or yeah. and then he, he that's the easy version and then he gives a a kind of much yeah. more um you know i guess pretentious uh, yeah. equivalent maybe there was that article i read yeah. or that essay but um yeah, it, it definitely explains why he's he uses a lot of end notes and doesn't want to um, get anything wrong and, and sort of offer two versions of everything as well. <laughs> yeah, the essay is called Authority in American Usage, and it was mm-hmm. a review of Brian Garner's uh, edition of um, a Dictionary of American Usage that had come out. Yeah. Uh, so, in, you know, it's Should no surprise that they yeah. asked Wallace, or that Wallace decided, I should say, to write something on it. Yeah, well, it's a dedication to read and review that it's like amazing (laughs) so it's been described as unsummarizable by a lot of um people or a lot of websites i went to can you describe the plot (laughs) in a yeah so (laughs) i'll try um i think when you ask somebody you know what's the plot that's a bit of a different question to what's it about uh so like i i guess to draw an analogy on the on the aboutness of it um you know, if someone says, what's, say, James Joyce's Ulysses about, you could say one of two things. You could say it's about a, a guy or one or two guys who walk around Dublin in one day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. okay, two guys <laughs> walk around a city in a day. Wow, that's really interesting. Or you could say it's about all of life mm-hmm. uh, in all of its facets and many wonderful aspects. And I think similarly, there's two ways to get into talking about Infinite Jest. So the plot, which is you know, obviously the equivalent of two guys walking around in a day. Um, it's set in Boston in the near future. And when I say the near future, the book being written in the early 90s, uh, it seems to be set sometime in an imaginary noughties. Mm-hmm. But obviously Wallace hadn't gotten into the noughties then. So yeah. it's not the noughties we've experienced yeah. necessarily. But the book is kind of divided into two two parts really. One, it's the story of a young tennis prodigy and kind of le- lexical prodigy as well called Hal Incandenza. And he's from, uh, he's kind of a troubled kid from a somewhat high achieving, but yet somewhat dysfunctional family or quite dysfunctional family. And it charts his uh, experiences in a tennis academy called Enfield Tennis Academy. It, it, it charts in some ways his downward trajectory um, surrounding marijuana addiction and the various pressures of training towards playing professional tennis or the show as it's called mm-hmm. with all of the kind of attendant associations with the show mm-hmm. and on the, o- the other side of the book is well and, and just to say that Hal and his you know uh, fellow tennis players and the academy they play in you know it, it seems quite kind of well to do it's from the upper end of society mm-hmm. And on the other side of the book is about, in, in some ways, the real, the main character of the novel, and in some ways, the, almost the Leopold, what Leopold Bloom would be to Joyce's Ulysses, the you know would be this guy to Infinite Jest is Don Gately, who's who's essentially uh, a petty criminal, and uh, and drug addict, and uh, he's a recovering addict, and 
he finds himself in a place called Ennett House, which is a kind of drug and alcohol recovery unit. It's a it's rehab, basically. It's a halfway house, actually. Mm-hmm. And Wallace himself had spent time in a halfway house after uh, he dropped out of Harvard um, for reasons to do with his own challenges with substances and with mental health. Uh, but anyway, Don Gately is this kind of larger-than-life jolly character. Uh, he's kind of deep down a good sod um, but, you know, he had a tough a tough start in life. Uh, he fell into petty crime, as I say. And the second part of the novel charts his uh, struggle to maintain sobriety and kind of the wisdoms around that and mm-hmm. his attendance of AA meetings and whatnot. Um, now, how do the two parts of the book kind of intertwine? Uh, well, there's a sort of overriding plot device where... The father of Hal is a was a movie director, and he produces a, a film called Infinite Jest, which is apparently so wildly entertaining that it leaves people in a state of kind of catatonic uh, euphoria. And you know there are a lot of very you could say artificial plot devices that go on. The cartridge of the film falls into the wrong hands. Uh, or there's worry by various governments, the U.S. government, uh, various kind of spies associated with the U.S. government, uh, that the this cartridge is going to fall into the wrong hands, namely to terrorists, and will be used uh, in various nefarious ways to get some kind of political go forward, uh, or to disrupt the the status the status quo in the country. Um, so that's kind of quite hard to describe and get into, mm-hmm. and sounds a little bit silly when you describe it out loud. But basically, the real kind of meat of the book are the various, various stories of uh, the kids at the tennis academy and the the recovering uh, subs- uh, substance abusers in Ennett House and how they got there, um, how they're coping with their immediate situation and kind of where they're going. So it's almost like you get a, a whole variety of different character sketches. Uh, it is a really hard book to describe, but... Mm-hmm. The, the kind of the two lungs of the book, for want of a better word, are the story of Hal, the tennis, uh, the tennis kid, and Don, the recovering mm-hmm. addict. And there are, you know, there, there are little hints in the book that they're going to meet, but mm-hmm. they don't actually ever meet in the book necessarily. I guess that's a spoiler, so yeah. we can cut that out if we want. <laughs> um, or th- the question of whether they're going to ever meet, similar to say Stephen Dedalus and Leopold Bloom and Ulysses, it's not entirely clear. But there mm-hmm. is a scene in the book which, in a sense, may stand outside, if not the, the narrative frame, because it's mm-hmm. in the book, stands outside the real time of the action of the novel. So yeah. we're not sure if they kind of if they ever really meet or if they're going to meet in the future yeah. because um, the meeting is described in the context of a dream. Okay, okay. So that's <laughs> okay, so I've probably done absolutely no good. Okay, in and again, in, in two sentences. <laughs> no, uh, no, but there's, I mean, there is a there is more structure there than you you might think. Um, in terms of, it's about it's a family and yes, their past and a few narratives yes, happening. Yes, very yeah. true. Yeah, um, and maybe I'm not doing it justice there. Hal has two brothers. Mm. Uh, one is a professional footballer, a punter. Um, one is, uh, I think, I suppose the best way to put it is kind of physically and poten- potentially intellectually challenged. Um, and as I said, his father is a film director who has really all sorts of other talents without kind mm-hmm. of giving too much away. And his mother is 
um, the head of the the school associated with the academy, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. So yeah, they are quite dysfunctional. Um, the the relationship between the brothers, uh, you know, is is an interesting one. Mm-hmm. Such as they are relationships, you know. Uh, I guess you you might think of the three brothers, uh, Karamazov, if you're yeah. you know kind of going to make a parallel, but. Um, yeah, that kind of idea of family dysfunction, and in a sense, the the pressures and strictures of living in an institution like uh, whether it's a tennis academy or um, you know a halfway house. I think mm-hmm. that that it's something that not a lot of people have really spoken about. You know, mm-hmm. the the experience of institutionalized life. You know, yeah. when we talk about institutions, I think people think of you know asylums or prisons, but I mean it could be yeah. anything from a school to a university. Yeah, you know anything yeah. that has that kind of structure even to a monastery you know yeah and he would have had a lot of that going as a tennis player himself and then going from he did a couple of degrees masters yeah 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 so he yeah of course universities as well and, and then obviously the addiction center or halfway or the halfway house. House. Yeah, yeah. yeah yeah for sure i mean he was very much a product of an academic family um yeah. he went to amherst uh for his undergrad did an mfa in arizona and then uh, after a couple of weeks dropped out of a harvard uh phd program mm-hmm. for reasons we kind of touched on so he definitely had that and as you say the halfway house and then through his career as he became a more noted author he taught at various colleges uh, i think emerson college um mm-hmm. and at uh, a couple of universities and ended up in california at pomona so mm-hmm. yeah, yeah like probably even though he wasn't an academic like many yeah. an academic had very institutionalized experiences and was he into therapy as well i know he did he he was on antidepressants and Mm. he he seemed to like um, revere the aa program um but i kind of got the sense from him that he didn't like like he hid his depression and he didn't Mm. it wasn't that open with people about it i wonder i don't know if you know therapy talking therapy was a thing that yeah uh, well, explored or I think as a public figure, he was careful uh, not to be open uh, about that with just anyone. Mm. So it wasn't in kind of uh, it wasn't, uh, you know, an open secret or something like that. Yeah. Um, privately, I mean, he he was very conversant with the language of psychotherapy, and yeah. that comes out in a lot of the the fiction. There's a story called Here and There in his. Uh, in his story collection Girl with Curious Hair mm-hmm. which came out in 1989 and was that on depression? I, it's the one I wanted to read it I don't think I've got uh, right no it's one. not but actually you're, you're pointing to even better example there in brief interviews with hideous men mm. there's a story called The Depressed Person which it, it pretty much does exactly what it says in the tin mm. uh, but there are a few of the stories in the brief interviews which touch on you know one of the the characters uh, of the one of the hideous men mentions that his mother had a master's in you know uh sociology and psychology or something like that and you know a lot of the language that that character uses touches on abstract concepts around you know uh psychology psychotherapy um psychosocial dynamics and all that Mm -hmm. sort of stuff so yeah i mean i think he was i I can't really comment on that Mm -hmm. um with any sense of authority but my sense is that he was deeply conversant with it he knew how to he he knew how to use that language mm-hmm. whether he used it for fictional ends rather than that he actually bought into that is another thing yeah however i don't think while you could say he parodied he parodied it in the depressed person and elsewhere i don't think he satirized it with the same sort of ruthless conviction as say 
Philip Roth would have done in Portnoy's Complaint, which is hilarious, a hilarious novel, but clearly isn't, uh, you know, a pro-Freudian text. Yeah. Well, it plays on, of course, Freudian ideas, but and, and, and sort of being on the couch yeah. and talking about one's mother and all that. In terms of that, like one of the things about the film Infinite Jest is that you know it, it it engages with some of those ideas because there's a kind of a mother figure who kind of represents death in some respects mm-hmm. um I'm, without going into too much detail on it in the film and it, there's so there's definitely a, this awareness of you know deep psychical ideas going on in mm-hmm. a lot of his fiction yeah does that make yeah any it sense? does i just yeah. um wondered because of reading about the last few years of his life coming off the drugs was so hard and he, he was in such a dark place i just was curious about maybe the types of therapies he might have done or yeah um and i know his family tried really hard to lift him out of that but yeah he sort of sad end. that's for sure he had he had he had come off uh the antidepressant he was on whose name escapes me now but and um i think as a result of a reaction to some food he had a, at a restaurant mm-hmm. or, or something to that effect but when he went back on them they were less less effective or weren't really that effective at all which threw him back into to the depression um he did apparently try uh electroconvulsive therapy so he yeah. was clearly like clutching at straws for anything that would work yeah. um as of, i'm sure being the person he was he was keen yeah. to get better um yeah so yeah whether he was he was a big fan of you know uh the talking cure is another question but i would argue that actually for him writing was mm-hmm. some whether it was an effective cure or not is another thing because yeah. obviously the uh the pressures of of following that book as well um yes which i sure. guess that most writers get after one big success they'd get that sort of am i do i have another book in me or yeah the fear of, of course was that it was that a fluke yeah, and it, it's not just that it was his first book and oh, what about what's going to happen to the second. I mean, he had uh, published uh, a novel at a very early age. Uh, he was in his 20s when he published The Broom of the System in 1987. Then he came out with a very good a collection of short stories, which I'm not sure how, how well it was received. Uh, but, you know, Infinite Jest was his third work of fiction. You know, Wallace is in some respects a bit of a polymath you know he wrote a book with his friend mark Costello on rap music this mm-hmm. came out in 1990 and whatever we might say about two white guys kind of writing about rap you know from kind of probably upper middle class overeducated academia. families <laughs> academia yeah the, the point is you know he was writing a lot of things he didn't have a problem with uh, necessarily producing but infinite jest regardless of you know what you think of it um you know it, it is a kind of monumental artifact of you know, uh, of the arts, not to mention of literature uh, Mm -hmm. from the 90s. And it stayed in that position Mm -hmm. for better or worse. And I think when you've produced something that just is physically quite monolithic, like I think I could probably, I'd have Mm -hmm. a good shot at killing you with that book if I needed to. Yeah, yeah. Um, You just, even at a distance, just throw it across the room. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You know, or, you know, it is hard to... um, it is hard to ignore that fact. And mm. yeah, th- he, I mean, he had started working on The Pale King, which was published posthumously quite mm. soon after in terms of early drafts, quite yeah. soon after Infinite Jest, but struggled, did struggle very much with uh, what I think he saw as, I think William Faulkner said that writing a novel is like trying to 
build a chicken coop in a, in a hurricane and wallace described the pale the experience of riding the pale king and even its structure as tornadic like it was a tornado he was wrestling with but you'd wonder whether he was actually wrestling with his own yeah. kind of inner tornado there you know yeah. um you mentioned philip roth there before and it made me think of um i just i don't want to dwell on this but he sure. does have um a reputation of being like one of the literary bros um yeah <laughs> and the boys maybe, club yeah maybe because like he's written a big epic book you yeah. know that that was has such a cult following um and he's he a lot of his readers probably are male but i i mean i don't necessarily agree with that because i think he's quite sensitive um and mm. interested in in humanity and, and that really kind of comes across so i feel like I don't know if that's deserved. Would you? What would you say to that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, that's the first thing uh, you're going to think of if you're wary of that. And I, I, I suppose, uh, you know, culture isn't smiling too kindly on that slice of the demographic uh, in recent years. I, I mean, there's maybe some truth to that. I, d- I don't think he. I mean, Wallace wrote uh, a review uh, talking about John Updike. And he mentioned Philip Roth and I think Norman Mailer, and he referred to them as the, uh, you know, great kind of male phallocrats. So mm-hmm. is he one of those? I don't know. Um, I think he was very wary of that generation that came before him, mm-hmm. of those kind of, uh, you know, white male writers producing kind of every every thought, you know, publishing every thought they have. I, I don't think he's really cut of the same cloth. Mm-hmm. I think you're, you're really hit on something there Haley. talking about there's a real sensitivity to him he's mm. uh, you sense that he's much more vulnerable soul yeah. you know and i think I, d- I didn't get the sense that maybe he was that great with women either or um or maybe didn't have that many f- female relationships or something so maybe it's yeah. just by what happened well um, that's a very interesting question because after his, his death um mary carr the writer who you know uh, he had been in we'll we'll call it a relationship with in some respect or another um had uh, tweeted apparently about you know how he was essentially abusive to her um now dt max his biographer did mention uh some of those kind of incidents with mary carr and with women generally and i think mary carr and my understanding is that she suggests that it wasn't gone into in enough detail or you know it was like two percent of what he did um, but there are mm-hmm. a lot of pretty hairy stories, uh, you know, that have that came out, you know, in that context about him, you know, following her home or, mm-hmm. you know, wanting to go buy a gun to shoot her husband and stuff like that. Okay. Um, so that. pretty heavy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and what's interesting is, you know, brief interviews with Hideous Men, which was published in 99, you know, in some it's basically about gender relations, particularly, you know, really heterosexual relations. Um, and there's a, you know, really a, a lot of the, the men are hideous. I mean, it's about, in some respects, toxic masculinity. But this is a book, you mm-hmm. know, published before Me Too yeah. and all that. So, so this might be his response to that fear of, of um, being like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I've, I've no doubt that, the, that there's a sense that he was tapping into, you know, feelings and thoughts and you know um impulses that may yeah. not have been the nicest you know either within himself or within the culture in general yeah um but i think speaking about actually claire hayes brady is a um, uh, lecturer in ucd she did an interesting um piece for the the honest Ulsterman about 
you know, how do you as a feminist today mm. and a Wallace scholar, how do you read Wallace now in light yeah. of Me Too, in light of the stories that have come out uh, via people like Mary Carr and also in light of then how do you go and read his work, not just brief interviews with hideous men, uh, which at the end of the day is mm-hmm. a work of art. You yeah. know, it's a it's a work of writing. And like Claire, I'd say you, you've got to be a bit wary about judging a book, not yeah. simply by its cover, but judging a book by its author's yeah. behavior outside of yeah. that that work of art i did read um i make a, made a note of sadie smith is a big fan um and she she wrote an essay on that book um yeah. i haven't read it myself but I, I i just thought i'd read out a paragraph that she wrote this is not from that essay i think it's a different article she okay. wrote um but it was quite nice um so she says brief interviews itself was the result of two enormous gifts the first was practical, the awarding of the MacArthur. A gift on that scale helps free a writer from the logic of market and maybe also from that bind Dave himself defined as post-industrial, the need to always be liked. The second gift was more complicated. It was his talent, which was so obviously great it confused people. Why would such a gifted young man create such resistance, such a resistant complex piece of work? But you need to think of the gift of economy the other way around. In a culture that depletes you daily of your capacity for imagination, for language, for autonomous thought, complexity like Dave's is a gift. His recursive labyrinthine sentences demand second readings. Like the boy waiting to dive, their resistance resistance breaks the rhythm that excludes thinking. Every word looked up, every winding footnote followed, every heart and brain stretching concept. They all help break the rhythm of thoughtlessness. Your gifts are being returned to you. Uh, it's a really nice way to d- <laughs> describe his writing. Yeah, very much so. It's an interesting mm-hmm. essay that Sadie Smith writes. Um, I think it's from her book, Changing My Mind. Yeah. You know, it was actually brief interviews with Hideous Men that got me into Wallace. That was the mm-hmm. uh, the text um, put on put on our reading list. And I think she really hits the nail on the head there. It's It's complex. It's deeply sophisticated and it's very resistant uh, because you know to really get into the you know nuts and bolts of nastiness and hideousness is, is a yeah. is a difficult thing to do regardless of who you are you know to go there emotionally and imaginatively must have been a real challenge especially mm-hmm. when it's potentially not going to reflect very well on yourself yeah, um, yeah. or who you could be or who you might have been uh, and I think, to me, it's his most, you know, in some ways his most experimental and avant-garde work, and in many respects his most interesting, even though he's famous for Infinite Jest, yeah. and even though he wrote a wonderful, dark, quite dark collection of stories called Oblivion, which came out in 2004, um, you know, the brief interviews really touches on all sorts of stuff, and also it's the way it does it so it's a, a series of interviews where you only hear one side of the interview it'd be like if you were asking me these questions uh but we didn't hear the questions we only hear mm-hmm. the answers so it's like yeah. one side of a overheard telephone conversation yeah uh and we never hear what the questioner asks but we get the answers and yeah. in this way we piece together these mini narratives and in between these interviews you have these other very odd dark strange weird oblique stories mm-hmm. that interweave and relate to these interviews so mm-hmm. I, I think as well what Sadie Smith is touching on there about the gift is interesting and um, Wallace was a big fan of Lewis Hyde's book The Gift 
and Haida apparently also suffered from alcoholism and it's a book basically about uh, the gift of art as in that art is a gift one makes and gives you know it's not something done for mm-hmm. for the market economy it shouldn't be just something done to be liked I, I actually I have to recommend it to anyone who's interested in this kind of thing yeah. Lewis Hyde's The Gift is a wonderful uh, yeah. work about creativity about tapping into your inner resources and making something from you know in a sense your struggles mm-hmm. uh, so I think I'm not sure if Sadie Smith was particularly referring referencing that and but the idea of the gift definitely crops up in Wallace's kind of imaginative world and yeah. what art could be particularly almost as a an antidote to the commercial elements of entertainment yeah you know because entertainment is you know and, and advertising too you know so an ad is quite so little of you just you're just sitting there you're not it's you're not involved as much yeah but more than that like i think you know like we were saying about infinite jest earlier like the novel is maybe asking of your time and attention but and, and mm-hmm. at the no matter how uh well made it is and you know who doesn't yeah. love a good ad it's asking yeah. you for your money it's asking yeah. you to kind of shell out um or maybe to try to buy into a certain view of yourself or into yeah. what's cool or what's sexy yeah, uh, yeah whereas it's at the end of the day all you're getting is like a soft drink yeah. you know yeah, yeah um whereas i think art real art is not asking anything back from you other than your time and attention yeah um and it, it kind of wants to give i mean at the end of the day how many serious writers or artists make what they make just for money i mean of course you have to live uh you know that's we've got to be mm-hmm. practical about it but yeah. well, that's not where it comes from really is it uh, it comes from a kind of a, i think a deeper place where you want to make something or leave something in the world uh that has meaning or that is that will communicate to someone mm-hmm. else and try to start up conversation with the with the audience yeah that's really nice um so what would uh, you mentioned the brief interviews with, with hideous men was the first book you read would you would you recommend that as an accessible way in or or maybe one of his essays or well what's great about brief interviews is that a lot of the pieces in it are quite short mm-hmm. uh so it's something you could definitely dip into and out of like on yeah. your train ride home or on the bus because it's a it's a series of episodic kind of stories or narratives it isn't something where you really have to commit like yeah. with infinite jest really to get serious pleasure from it um or to get all that much out of it you really have to see get the whole thing kind of have to finish the dinner yeah yeah uh but with brief interviews yeah it's definitely probably the best work to get into wallace if you you know if you're short on time however at the same time it's quite it is an unusual book Mm -hmm. you know it's and it is a challenging book but if you're willing to kind of go for you know short concentrated bursts it might be yeah for you personally though i've always felt that the essays are the best way into Wallace because while they're somewhat unconventional for long form journalism, they, you know, they are ultimately like a piece of prose you'd read in a, in a newspaper or magazine, you know, and they touch on topics that if you're not a big fiction reader, you might be interested in. So just to give you an idea, Wallace wrote on everything from tennis, which won't surprise you. Uh, Mm -hmm. He wrote a wonderful piece on Roger Federer Mm -hmm. uh, to, you know, the ethics of boiling lobsters, which is, obviously an important issue if you're you know i I actually so disturbed when i read that were you horrible are you vegetarian (laughs) no no but i i I did i was thinking okay maybe time (laughs) maybe it's time i was for years growing up but um 
I, I wouldn't eat that much red meat and I definitely don't eat much lobster but I have eaten it mm. have enjoyed it yeah but it, it oh it's it's kind of heartbreaking reading that essay it is yeah and I but like literally uh, I mean as I, going back to what I was saying earlier about Wallace being a bit of a polymath he I don't mean that's in terms of specialism necessarily though more so interests his his non-fiction touches on everything from um, writing about other literary authors like Kafka and Dostoevsky. He's written about pornography via the Adult Video News Awards, which is mm-hmm. kind of the porn Oscars. Mm-hmm. Um, he's written about John McCain, the presidential candidate from back around 2000. So politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're interested in literally anything from politics to porn, you might find something. Mm-hmm. And, and hey, who's not interested in <laughs> either politics they or porn? They go together. Don't they? they? <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> uh, you'll find something in Wallace for you. I mean, as I mentioned, he wrote a book on rap music. Uh, he wrote a piece of popular mathematics on... Uh, oh, sorry, uh, yeah, popular nonfiction on mm-hmm. on uh, George Contour's like infinite set theory. So, so are these all commissions, or because um, obviously yeah. he's a novelist, but he's he's also known as an essayist. So a lot yes. of the books are essays, but some of them are written for newspapers. So did he just put a collection together after, or was it? Was yeah, it they, they were. Most of them were commissioned. So um, he wrote for Harper's, The New Yorker, Atlantic, all these kind of uh, publications. And some of them were commissions like this famous cruise piece, yeah. a cruise ship piece where he went off on a luxury cruise yeah, and wrote for a Rolling Stone. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. I mean, I've never been on a cruise, but it's exactly how how I've come to know them just I don't know if at the time people knew much about cruises, but it just seems to, it's exactly how I imagine That's <laughs> it would be. And maybe just from being in the odd resort or spa breaks, there's just that sense that of, feeling. I love how he describes a sense of despair that's just un- running under everything. And yeah. just the, the kind of, the staff working, the legs of a duck underwater, like furiously <laughs> and being treated so badly. And just, yeah, it's a brilliant essay. Yeah, it's yeah. true. And he, he went, he did a few things like that. So he went to the uh, state fair in Illinois and that's actually a very interesting one as well. But where I think it's in that when he, he mentions um, that, you know, kind of tourism is, uh, I, I'm not, I'm paraphrasing here more than quoting, but it's, you know, commercially great and all, you know, or economically good for, for people, but it's kind of existentially loathsome. Yeah. <laughs> you feel a, a little bit like seedy sometimes yeah. if you're, if you're kind of in a tourist trap or buying the kitsch souvenir or whatever it yeah. is. And I think he tapped into something about not just American culture, but I think modern culture uh, yeah. that the tourist is almost like a symbolic of, you know, in terms of economic transaction and yeah. s- sort of emptiness around it. Yeah. Even though in tourism, there's this desire for adventure and experience and yeah. you know, discovery and of the yeah, self. Yeah, he mentions going to see the local life, but you're ruining it when you arrive and you're changing it by exactly. arriving and yeah. being there. Yeah, and yeah. that's something I think we're all hopefully becoming a bit more aware of in terms yeah. of, you know, taking care of our environment. And that was something that's it's maybe not like right up there in the front, but I think an awareness of environment is there lurking a lot in the background in Wallace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting, the lobster essay, it was commissioned by, was it Food and Wine magazine? So uh, I don't know, know if yeah, that's gourmet, necessarily... Gourmet magazine. I don't know if it's the response they would have wanted. <laughs> so he just, I mean, they must know what they're getting themselves into if they, if they ask him to write an essay for them because it wasn't necessarily promoting <laughs> the Lobster Festival in Maine. It, it's, but he just seems to naturally go, oh, hang on, this isn't right. And then I'm <laughs> yeah. going to go down that route of it not being right. 
and then the cruise I'm not sure who who asked him to write the, the cruise ship um, story but they obviously probably wanted a satire of a, cru- of a cruise typical cruise ship journey but yeah I was gonna how do you think his writing has aged and what I mean this is hard to answer but what do you think he'd be writing today if he was still alive would you think he'd be still experimenting or that is do you think his his style has sort of held up yeah that is a hard question to answer um you know he died in September 2008 uh around the time of the financial crisis and crash and just before Barack Obama came into um Mm -hmm. the White House and uh Adam Kelly uh, he's a Wallace scholar and a friend of mine you know said to me around that time you know well apparently he may have been working on something about Obama just as he had done on John McCain or perhaps I'm misremembering that and he was saying wouldn't it have been interesting how yeah. he would have responded to that idea of hope which I think is a yeah. very deep word in Wallace's you know um, world and that's sort of the way Obama you know springboarded off that concept of hope for the future and uh, that affirmative element Mm -hmm. to his politics and of course how he would have responded to the financial crash Uh, there's a very very good book I just read last month by a Wallace scholar called Jeffrey Severs uh, called Wallace's Balancing Books and it's all about how he engages with he engaged across his work in in ways that aren't even obvious to someone who's well read uh, Mm -hmm. you know in Wallace with political economy Mm -hmm with financial transactions with exchange but actually it's all there and I think in some ways he was deeply concerned about that kind of neoliberal shift in America and now I suppose in our world too um, politically and then the implications for the free market and and Mm. the economy and what that could do to you know the ordinary person uh, and people in general and we're we're already I mean we've we've obviously now seen um, you know, the repercussions of the crash in 2008 going forward over the last X number of years yeah. and with various other crises, crises yeah. um, coming after that. But so I would even get, I think he would have written something on Obama potentially at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, he definitely would have had something to say about Trump. <laughs> yeah, um, but he would have been very, it would have been very interesting just to hear, I guess, his thoughts on anything, but on smartphones, on the pandemic. Like yes. I, I could imagine him doing a lot of essays on those but that's if if he still kept that kind of style up yeah it's hard to kind of talk about the what ifs in that respect but but what's interesting about him in terms of the writing aging is you know in some ways he'd already written about a lot of that so there's a really interesting piece in infinite jest about the this this idea of videophony which Mm -hmm. is essentially our idea of facetime or zoom and Mm -hmm. i think anyone uh listening who's you know been on zoom calls over the last year and a half Mm -hmm. or so will know what that experience is like and it's incredibly prescient and if you could yeah. kind of substitute the word zoom or for video yeah. phony, you'll 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 hear <laughs> yeah. your own experience in yeah. it very yeah. very clearly i do think that it, the writing is aged well because like like i suppose most really fresh good writing it, it you know it's usually as they say a little bit ahead of its time i mm-hmm. think in terms of his engagement with the culture his engagement with ideas and you know where he was in his own you know writing and in his influences he was at the tip of the spear in mm-hmm. the in the you know late 80s 90s and early noughties very much mm-hmm. like in fact way ahead like i think yeah. raising the bar for everybody and 
I think because of that, you know, notwithstanding the fact that it's now, what, like 13 years since his passing, that's not a long time in in mm-hmm. in, in terms yeah. of the history of the English language and the history yeah. of prose style. So it, it yeah. still feels very yeah. much, you know, finger on the pulse stuff now. Yeah. Would he have been influenced by any Irish writers? Like just the idea, I mean, the undertaking <coughs> of that book is kind of joycey and, um, and you know, maybe who his influences were and then maybe who he influenced as sure. well. Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, I think there's no denying that there's a huge Joycean influence in Infinite Jest. And, you know, uh, in some ways I do see him as the Joyce of his generation. Um, and that's going from a Dubliner, so it must yeah. count for something. But, uh, you know, in terms of the, 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 the wordsmith element of it, for want of a better term, um, and the, the ambitious engagement with, sort mm-hmm. of almost novels of ideas and uh this capturing of things in in minute detail and an exactness mm-hmm. and a, a grammatical and syntactical you know a grammatical exactness and a, an ambitious use yeah. of syntax and yeah. diction but but uh beyond that i mean his influences were from all sorts of different places fiction wise i think there's I mean, he wrote on Kafka and Dostoevsky, so there's a lot there. He wrote an interesting piece on Kafka's use of humor, and as I mentioned, I think that th- there's, th- I think there's spiritual, almost religious elements in Dostoevsky that mm-hmm. uh, kind of bleed into the work. In terms of Irish writers, I think it's more interesting, actually, almost to to ask how Irish writers have been influenced by Wallace rather than the other way around. Um, Like Paul Murray's novel, Skippy Dies, which is a wonderful read, is very much in the post, I I hope you won't mind me saying this, uh, in the kind of post-Wallace mode. Um, And it it definitely feels like that there are elements in that work, which is set in a a school or a boarding school. Um, Paul Murray uh, went to Blackrock College around the corner from where we're we're talking, and I think there's a bit of of black rock in in that novel and that sense a bit like hal in condenses tennis academy there's the sense of um the teenage experience in an institution mm-hmm. uh, that that's there uh, i think uh, i don't remember the context but kevin power uh, mm-hmm. the irish novelist of bad day in black rock and i yeah. think now um white city, white city is his yeah. latest he he I think wrote an interesting piece or I, I think he actually gave it as a as a talk about the impact of really American literature but I think you're going to uh, you know apply this to Wallace is mm-hmm. more specifically but how really Irish writers now uh, who are growing up and uh, going to college and you know studying English or reading books were much more influenced by America uh, mm-hmm. postmodern writers and you know, from kind of post-war novelists, essentially, mm-hmm. and post-war fictionists, right up to Wallace and beyond, more than maybe they would have been in previous generations, whereas they'd be looking to the Joyces and the Becketts and and so on. And I, like, I, I, I certainly get the sense that friends of mine and I myself tend to um, feel that presence more of the the americans than let's say the john bonvilles or the john mcgaharns brilliant mm-hmm. or the column tobins brilliant as they are uh, mm-hmm. i think and i think what that has to do with it's nothing to do with the quality of the writing or the prose style it's got something to do with how the american experience in a bizarre way comes closer to or captures our experience today mm-hmm. in the 21st yeah. century in ireland more than yeah. let's say uh 
the the kind of what we we might call the Irish experience of Irish writers writing, you know, in the last 20, 30, 40 years about yeah. Ireland coming out of, um, you know, mid mid century Ireland. Yeah. Th- does that make sense at all? Yeah, yeah, no, it does. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So maybe you could tell me a little bit about your own writing and uh, if it's oh. influenced by Dave at all or. Um, is it is that just a side interest that's that's interesting that you asked it's a maybe that's a hard question to answer uh, but in yeah. a good sense of yeah. hard like I, I actually have to now analyze it <laughs> um well because you write poetry i do yeah, yeah. Uh, well in the most obvious sense yeah it's hugely influenced in the sense that you know i think what you read always feeds into your thinking about writing regardless mm-hmm. even if it's you know in terms of you know how precise do i need to be in yeah. terms of grammar and syntax or yeah you know what what's kind of what's what's out there right now like what what are people writing about not that that's necessarily important for you know you you want to say what you want to say you've got your own path to um to follow or your own uh your own furrow to plow but you know there's no getting around the fact that if you read all of any author uh, with great relish they're going to kind of wangled away into your your imaginary world and your universe but in the most obvious sense um in that i've published several essays on wallace and his work and that is part of my my (laughs) own published corpus the influences there um and i think in that sense I, i wrote a piece on his formative philosophical influences and i think what really has influenced my thinking about writing um in general is the way wallace incorporates philosophical ideas or engages with philosophy in his writing i'm not saying that i necessarily do that myself Mm -hmm. uh in any obvious or you know upfront way but i think he kind of showed me oh you can do like you can well if you can't do it Mm -hmm. somebody can do this this can be done and i think Mm -hmm. that's interesting and important for any writer who feels philosophy as much as might read or think about it in terms of poetry, no, I, I don't know uh, is, is the yeah. short answer. Uh, I, I think the influences there are much more personal and, you know, in some ways you don't just engage with yeah. like the poetic tradition, whether it's, yeah. say, Yeats or Heaney or whoever it is. And I'm not just talking about Irish poets, of course. Yeah. Um, but I think that, you know, for example, Roberto Bolaño, uh, oh, yeah. the author of 2666 I think saw himself as a poet first yeah. uh, and he essentially started writing fiction and novels so it's sad that, uh, to, to make a living to spoil yeah. his children but you know is he a poet or a novelist you know I think that's uh, that's always been something that's kind of interested me you know is a poet someone who writes something down in a pillar down a page and it rhymes mm-hmm. or it doesn't rhyme or it's a sonnet structure yeah. or is it about a particular engagement with maybe non-narratives like lyric uh, mm-hmm. as opposed to narrative yeah. or um with with a certain tradition you yeah. know in a certain tone or mood you yeah, know that you'll yeah. get in a particular in a lot of kind of um modern poetry yeah i, I don't know if that answers the question no, it does yeah and, and maybe you covered this already but um your thesis what was your thesis on it, it was and it was a what i suppose people would call a single author thesis that was on david foster wallace um, I think the title went something like David Foster Wallace and American Literature After Postmodernism. So it, it basically, it was about how Wallace had been in early on considered as this kind of postmodern satirist. But mm-hmm. basically he was a, a moralist in, in, in the modern um, vein. 
not a finger-wagging moralist, but mm -hmm. somebody whose fiction and writing engaged with moral philosophy and ethics mm -hmm. and used, in a sense, um, fiction as a form and essays as a form to engage or even dramatize philosophical problems philosophical yeah. issues and, and by philosophical i really mean moral and ethical issues mm -hmm. um so that was kind of the the pitch essentially yeah. and it's you know at the time i was doing that um just kind of between about 2006 and 2010 or 11 Wallace hadn't died. I was halfway into it when he yeah. when he passed away. So oh. the the culture changed very much after that because yeah. a lot of people would say, you know, what's you know, how are you even writing on a living writer? Can that be done? And I think in some ways it made it a little bit easier, though mm. I would rather it not have been this yeah. way, to um, to kind of fix down what his corpus was about, like what his yeah. oeuvre was about, uh, because it's like. I think I drew the analogy of it's like somebody being out in safari in the field watching a wild animal moving and trying to study it versus being yeah. dissecting it under the, you, the lab microscope. Did you reach out to him at all when he was alive? Or did you write to him or anything? In, in way, not personally. Um, my uh, thesis uh, supervisor invited him uh, to Oxford to, to, to speak uh, and he declined uh, politely mm -hmm. for okay. reasons of, I think, prior that's, commitments. Okay, as in, like, that's great, he replied. <laughs> yeah, well, he did reply. Uh, he, he turned it down, I think, on the basis of prior commitments. But retrospectively, I wonder, was he starting to go through uh, his final his struggle plan. around yeah, that time? Because yeah. I think, if I remember correctly, that was around 2007 that the invite was issued. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so he never came, but uh, I did... Uh, contact the gentleman who supervised his own thesis and I ended up getting before before it's since been published but I ended up getting a look at his a manuscript of his philosophy thesis oh, right. for his undergrad which was since yeah. published yeah, as yeah. Fate, Time and Language which is a, a lot basically a thesis in modal logic yeah um and after his death yeah. a little bit of a correspondence with Jonathan Franson about it uh about it just um, yeah. condoling as much as anything and yeah oh, right. um, but no never yeah. and they say you shouldn't meet I, i'm not gonna go quite so far as to say you know um wallace is my you know hero in the kind of uh all-encompassing sense yeah. i think we all have lots of heroes but uh, they say it's better not to meet your yeah. hero so maybe that's a good i thing. agree and i, I don't yeah. even i don't even mean it agree in the way that they might disappoint me. It's just, I would hate to disappoint them. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> I would hate for that to annoy them or for the, or to say something stupid. I, I just would rather they just didn't know anything yeah. about my existence. They, they probably think, oh, I expected <laughs> you to be taller or something. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's very uh, yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. That was really interesting. It's great to have a, a David Foster Wallace scholar explain the books. <laughs> Thanks, Amy. In as best as I could. Yeah, um, that's great. But uh, go and read them for yourselves, I guess, is the yeah. best way to get into them, isn't okay. it? And uh, yeah, I'll link to the library catalogue so you can get them from the library. So thanks a lot, Tom. Thank you, Hayley. It's been a pleasure.